Hello, and welcome to episode number 144 of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who was born in Bulgaria, but has spent most of his life living in Italy and Germany. Originally a pianist, he switched to conducting, studying with Gianluigi Gelmetti and Jorma Panala, and is probably best known for being the founder of the orchestra he still conducts today, the Mannheim Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra. It's a great pleasure to welcome Boyan Vidinov. Boyan, I have a poster on my wall which tells me that the last time we saw each other face to face was April 2007. How are you? You look very well. I am great, Mike. So nice to see your face again. It's really crazy. 17 years? That's... I know. It's flown by, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I will let the listener know why we met 17 years ago in St. Petersburg in Russia. Um, but for now, we must go back and initially to Bulgaria before you moved to um, Italy and Germany. But initially you were born in Bulgaria to musical parents. Um, could you tell us, I mean, obviously, if you're born to musical parents, music's there from the very beginning. But how did it really come into your life and what were your first instruments? Um, my mom is a violinist. My, pop, my, my dad uh, used to be a singer. And therefore, those also two instruments that I had early on, um, I was singing a lot and I was playing the violin, then kind of a rebellion against my mother brought me to play the piano and the oboe and playing jazz and staying far away from classical for a while. Um, but um, somehow we had a good friend, maybe you remember Marcello Viotti, the conductor who passed, unfortunately, pretty young, 50 years old was the father of actually Renzo Viotti, who is now um, doing very well in, in our uh, industry. And um, he was a very good friend of our family. And I was a kid. And somehow that inspired me a lot, that um, that man waving his hands. I didn't understand <laughs> anything at that age um, about it. But somehow it, I found it inspiring. And later, the more I understood what that profession is about, the more fascinating I found it. So yeah, this is how I got to conducting. Did you, I mean, at the beginning, I've asked this of people with musical parents, were your parents at all pushy about you, you know, your mum saying you must learn the violin? Or did they just let you grow up like any other child and, and make you, you know, let you choose, allow you to have a you know, sort of a normal childhood? And, and then uh, then there might be a day when little boy Anne says, mummy, I want to learn the violin. Will you teach me? How, how was it? Um... My mom was pushed a lot by her dad. Right. So she had an aversion against that kind of parenting. Yeah. Um, and that led to her giving me actually quite a lot of freedom. Yeah. My dad is a singer. So anyway, that's a breed of their own in a way. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, he, for him, was important that I do something. But whether it's music or not, I don't think that was that important. Um, but uh, he just wanted me to be serious about something. And my mom... She kind of wanted to give me the freedom to develop as a child, which ultimately led to the fact that I started practicing and really working seriously quite late um, because it's normal if they don't push you while you're a kid. Um, and very few kids have this intrinsic wish to work alone and have this discipline. Um, it's, I think, especially in today's world where distractions are so many, so many yeah. opportunities. 
it's a different thing if you're born in the Soviet Union and everything around you is gray in a way and music is actually the escape from a really bad reality around you, then you can really dig in into something like this. And and this is also why we see in those times artists emerging um, or in such, you know, circumstances. But in today's time, I grew up in Germany or beginning in Italy. So it was quite open for me. And my parents did not push a lot. So I had a hard time to catch up then when I was a young man. <laughs> it's funny. I have interviewed quite a few conductors who grew up in that Soviet system. And whilst, you know, none of us would agree on the politics of that system, all of those conductors have said, how incredible the music education system was because there was money thrown at it because there was you know um as you said there was little else to do it was a gray world and the color came from the music and they've all said how much they benefited from studying and learning about music during that totalitarianism sort of system um i wonder whether you know i mean it's maybe it's too deep a topic for this podcast but i wonder how on earth we can ever gets to a world where music becomes that important to to be educated now because i know in the uk it's not it's dri dribbled and dwindled away over the last you know 30 40 years to the point where it seems to only be now for those who can afford to pay to go to special schools um yeah it's a shame it's that's a real problem that you're talking about because um we're seeing this Somehow we as humanity don't learn much. Um, the moment we're doing well, we think the arts are given. And um, we've seen it also during COVID. The moment that things are not going so well, the first thing we run to is the arts um, mm. to, to find comfort. Um, in wars, uh, people start singing. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how... The moment we feel good, we think we can do without it. And the moment we are really in a bad situation, it's the first thing we need as a to nurture our souls and our hopes. Um, and I think that today's world is so digital already and so um yeah, full of distractions, full, you know, a video game is so much more interesting than looking at a piece of sheet music and trying to figure out what to do with the fingers on the piano. So um it requires maybe new approaches for children also to to get you know involved into that because only if you really get passionate about it only then will you develop um that certain you know character traits that are needed to really stick with it and that ultimately will benefit your entire um being whether you become a musician or not at the end it doesn't matter because if you are someone who's self-disciplined someone who really follows through on some project they start that will benefit you in any way in your life. Um, but in order to get there, you need to be passionate first. And becoming passionate about something needs also, yeah, something that this initial spark. Well, I think we'll come to the initial spark when we later on talk about your orchestra in Mannheim that you founded and started. I will add as a postscript to what you just said, how much I agree wholeheartedly with everything you just said. Yet have to say that in the UK during COVID, yeah, loads of people went to culture and the arts. But actually, the people who got no or little or no financial support from the government during COVID were the musicians. And it's a passionate uh, subject of mine. And I'm maybe this year I'm going to uh, come up with a plan to make the world realise that music doesn't just grow on trees and appear from somewhere. I've got an idea for a National No Music Day where music is banned from all media just to highlight the fact that you know nothing 
that these things this thing doesn't just appear people need to be educated in it and if you know, they weren't educated in maths there wouldn't be people designing and building anything um so you know this music doesn't just grow on trees and as you said when we need it when we're at our lowest ebb um people just go to it and grab it and consume it but are they really thinking about where it comes from uh and yeah uh, i'm uh, i'm gonna get off my soapbox now boy because otherwise this will be this will be a, a politics podcast and not a music podcast <laughs> no um, but you know just just to, to conclude on that thought because i think it's really important you know the the um, american association for psychology they have made a big study about it mm. and they found that children who actively play an instrument not sing but really play an instrument those children on one year one academic year ahead of their peers who don't mm. this is incredibly uh, an incredible finding that shows how much playing an instrument develops the two halves of our brains, connects them, and makes basically us more intelligent in many ways. Um, mm. And it's a really, it's a shame that, um, yeah, music education is not so central uh, right now in our educational systems. You're absolutely right. Well, it, I agree with all of that. We're going to stick with education because you eventually went on to study piano at the Mannheim University. Seems Mannheim was a place that crops up in your life quite a bit. I mean, I studied piano, but always already with the thought that I want to be a conductor. So yeah. Mannheim, to me, studying piano in Mannheim was more of a, I had found my teacher in conducting. I first was um, in Berlin, young student, um, had I thought I had a teacher that I, I liked, but then I, I moved on. And then I found by chance Gianluigi Gelmetti who at that time was chief conductor in Sydney uh, in the symphony orchestra and in Rome in the opera. And I really fell in love with um, his music making, with his understanding of music. He was an incredible pedagogue and musician, first of all. He had studied with Hans Warowski, with uh, Franco Ferrara and Cilbidake, so three really very different schools, mm. um, and had to give so much. He was a quite tough, strong character. I say was because he passed just um, two years ago. Um, and... It was a very special experience for me when I first, it was an impact. I coming from a musical family where I had the feeling at that time that everything is easy and, you know, like the, the, the ocean is deep to my knees. And then this man kind of taught me, boy, you're so far from from reality. And that, that was exactly what I needed. Someone mm. around me in a way and and at the same time teach me the real values and and fight with me over little details in the score that I would just superficially ignore. And um, so it was a fantastic time for me. And I had found this, this teacher and, and he was not teaching at an academy. And so I thought, okay, but some academic path I should do. So I decided I'm going to study piano and do all the composition things. I took all the composition classes in Mannheim and I had all the possibility there. Um, at the same time, I was quite free knowing that I will never really like care about becoming a great pianist. I was free to travel a lot and follow him and follow his productions and spend time with him and then study with him in Siena in summer always. Um, we had pretty long periods of two, two months with orchestra. That was a fantastic. So yeah, studying piano was always with the idea of that I actually want to be a conductor. So let me get some chronology here. Uh, for, I mean, for instance, the first time uh, any orchestra appears on Wikipedia, and again, Wikipedia, dear listeners, you know, is often wildly wrong. Um, but it says you became the permanent guest conductor of the Varna Philharmonic Orchestra in Bulgaria. It's on the Black Sea in 2006. But we didn't meet until 2007. So when did you start learning with um, with Gelmetti? 
Well, that is, I don't think that's 100% correct what you found in Wikipedia. I was conducting Varna regularly. Yeah. Um, and that was back then um, the director of the orchestra um, was, my father was back then in Bulgaria, a very important singer and um, they were friends and he, my father told him I'm a conductor or it's hmm. start, starting to be a conductor and he felt like supporting always young people. So he invited me. I did well the first concert. I think it was Beethoven seventh or something. And, and then I started coming back every year there um, hmm. for a while. Um, and we met in 2007, and I think I had already conducted the first time in Varna. That was my very first, let's say, engagement as a, pro pro well, professional, but let's say yeah. professional engagement as a non-professional conductor. And did you start with Geometti after we met in 07? Um, 12 was my fifth year, so 12, 11, 10, 9, 7, 8, I started with him. Yeah, seven. So, so let's get to 07. So for... Uh, I'm interested to know why you were there in St. Petersburg. I know why I was there. I'd started conducting, uh, and Zachary Oromo was the uh, music director of the CBSO, and I had been uh, already in 07, I'd been two years their assistant conductor with the CBSO. But Zachary rightly said to me, look, you ought to go and have some lessons and tidy up. He didn't have time, so he sent me to his teacher, Yorma Panela, and we were there for, what, 10 days, two weeks? So I know why I was there. What made you go and seek or sit at the feet of the great conducting Yoda, who's still with us, um, well into his nineties? What made you go? Uh, and, Are you and still not, in touch with him? I'm not in touch with him. No. Um, uh, but, I mean, I mean, you know, maybe it would be wonderful to try and get him on the podcast. But how how in depth the conversation would be, I don't know. As you remember, <laughs> he is a man of few words, but often in many different languages at once. Um, why did you go? Well, pretty much for the same reasons as you did. I mean, I was I was um, young, just starting out, and back then his name was, of course, mentioned everywhere. You had, um, you know, Esapeka and uh, many, 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 many who came from that school. So for me, it was pretty normal to back then. I was looking for where could I study, with whom should I study. So this is how I reached out to Yorma, and I. It's strange. I, I I really fell in love in the way he was um, treating certain things. I mean, he was in he was not someone who would work with you on interpretation, right? He, no. he he is someone who would ask you, "What do you want?" Ah, fortis, forzato. Okay, then do like this, you know. And whether that forzato makes sense or not, if you had a crazy stupid idea, he'd just go for it, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but though later, if you get to know him a bit more, then he would actually start. Like if he would care about you, then he would also start questioning a few ideas. But it's rare, mm. I would say. Um, and that was great for for starting out for understanding the technique and and what it what it matters or how much you can change sound with technique um, and thoughts. And yeah, for me, it was a fantastic start with Yorma Panula. Well, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think those of us who were there, who were at at a sort of level, you know, so you'd already done your first professional engagement. I'd done two years as assistant with the CBSO. There are a couple of other guys there who'd done a few gigs, uh, professional gigs. Um, you know, there are, there are about five or six of us who were at that, that level. I think it was a wonderful technical sort of cleanup. Um, you know, it really taught us, you know, well, if you want that, this is how you do it. You know, stop doing this. Try and do this less. Try and do this more. Um, 
and, and you know, and, and and you would learn as much from the video sessions afterwards with yeah. him teaching other people, maybe of a lesser technical ability. You would also watch as much watching him react to somebody else who was conducting it. We would all sit in the room and watch everybody else who was conducting. Um, uh, I, I remember vividly the first time Ken David Mazur conducted in that on that course, and we all turned around and went, "My God, he's just like his dad." Um, it, um, whether he still conducts just like his dad, I don't know. Um, but it, it was fascinating to watch, you know, how he taught to different people at different levels, and I learned more from watching him teaching the other people than maybe I did from him teaching me. Do you agree with that? Hundred percent. I think actually um, learning from such classes, I think it's so important to have this class group learning. Um, Jalmeti was doing the same. You were not allowed to miss a lesson of the others. And he mm. actually did so that um, he was notching it up a level like you would not know when you have lesson with what you have lesson. So he, we had in Siena, we had a suitcase full of scores. Um, usually it was all Beethoven sonatas, all Brahms, uh, sonata, symphonies, all Brahms symphonies, um, sacra, an opera. It was just full of stuff. And then he'd say, Vidanov, Brahms, terza, second movement. And you just start looking for the score and grab it and run up. That kind of stress situation to have a huge repertoire ready, which is impossible at mm. that age, especially. Um, and also, you know, in a way of now you have to deliver. That was, of course, a great lesson, but you not learn much mm. that moment. It's you're under stress, you're under adrenaline, you somehow swim to survive. Um, but seeing others in that moment, you'd see all the problems come out like fungi, you know? <laughs> because <laughs> Because in the stress, it's where we actually are the weakest in a way, or all, all our weaknesses come out um, very evidently. Um, so this is um, something where I found amazing to just look, and then he would teach, and he would really pinpoint those problems and really go in depth into into the, those problems. And if you had a you know a, a bit of a character to withstand his rough way, Gilmetti's, I'm talking about Gilmetti, then you'd learn a lot from him. Other people sometimes would say he's too rough, but if you really get put it aside and just think about what matters, I think one can learn a lot. And I know that other important pianists, for example, like Fleischer was doing the same. Um, in his studio, you had to be at all the lessons of everyone. So I think that's way, where do you learn the most when mm. you listen to other people's lessons and you are not in the stress situation, therefore can calmly analyze what's happening. Well, I mean, it's you know to use an analogy that's popped into my head. You know, we often say that our brains are like sponges. If you're only absorbing the water that is given to you, you know, on an individual basis, you can absorb it. That's fine. But actually, if your if you, your sponge is thrown into the sea, you're going to it's going to absorb so much more water than you can ever 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 take on board. But you might absorb stuff that you were never going to be told on a one to one basis. You know, I'm thinking about watching somebody else conduct and they use a turn of phrase or they use a sentence or they use one word and the teacher stops them and says, no, you cannot use that word. Well, that word yeah. might not have been in your vocabulary. It might end up in your vocabulary in 20 years and then you use it and you've got it wrong. You know, but little things like that are fascinating, aren't they? That, you know, by watching somebody else, you know, I remember watching people conducting that week, 17 years ago nearly, and thinking even now I still use those, or well, don't use those words. Yes, yeah, 100% agreed. <laughs>
so at some point you leave the education of both Pamela and Gelmetti and start guest conducting, I'm assuming, around the place. But in 2009, you started your orchestra, the Mannheim Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra. Uh, you founded it then. Um, first of all, why? I mean, obviously, the answer for most of us conductors is, well, if I fi start my own orchestra, then at least I've got some conducting. That's a cynical view. But why why there as well? Uh, and what were the initial reasons why you started it? I think there were several reasons. First mm. reason was, as you said, experience. Um, and that came on a different, like on different levels that that conclusion came to my head. Like I was 2006, I was invited to conduct a student's orchestra in China on tour from German music, Hochschule, university schools, um, many, many different musicians telephoned together and we just went to China and we were like two weeks there and just played six concerts it was more a vacation than, than a tour yeah, yeah. it was really fun um, and there I, I was the youngest I was 19 year old um, and I met all those musicians who were in their 20s late 20s some in their 30s and all describing the same problem we're either not invited to auditions or if we're invited we just get out in the first round never passed the second, generally super hard to get a job. Mm. Like when we started studying music, we didn't think it would be like that. Um, and if you look back in the 70s, I mean, especially after the war here in Germany, if you could play the double bass orchestras, which ah, you can play the bass, you have an instrument, <laughs> come, come play in the orchestra. Yeah. Um, now it's not like that, right? Now, now you have 300 people applying for a flute position. It's crazy. Um, so... That situation showed me, oh, wow, um, something needs to be done. Um, and I need experience. You guys need experience. Why don't we do an orchestra? This was a very naive thought. And this was actually what led me to start it. And I first thought, oh, I'm going to call it Beethoven Sinfonietta because I always love Beethoven. And then I thought, but no, if they have to take a serious when you apply then and you say, I'm the solo flutist of the Mannheim Philharmonic, it should be some, you know, like professionally sounding orchestra. Mm. <laughs> so this is how I came to the idea to say, okay, let's call it Mannheim Philharmonic. And why Mannheim? Because my mom was professor in Mannheim and I was young student, piano student in Mannheim. And I had this connection to that city. And I was seeing that in that city, there is a lot of financial possibilities because there are a lot of sponsors, I mean, famous, important companies, um, German industries there. And it's a big area. It's uh, with Heidelberg and Ludwigshafen, it's over 1.4 million people or something like this. So it's pretty big, um, has a lot of culture and it has a theater orchestra and it has a chamber orchestra. And that city doesn't have a symphony orchestra so i thought why not doing that there mm. um again super naive thought <laughs> and i just yeah started it like that um without having any idea of how hard it would be and how much actually effort it would take and maybe that also naivete helped me to go through this initial hurdles which are unbelievably difficult um i mean when we started it um you know my parents had a Mercedes A-class car. You remember those that yes. were falling over in the in the tests of uh, driving um, 
um, turns. Um, so it was pretty high and we could fit a double bass in it. So I would drive the double basses to rehearsal and we would change every day the rehearsal place because we didn't have a rehearsal place. So I'd put the double bass, drive one, then go back next next uh, my dad had a chrysler voyager and he had built from wood uh, like a i don't know like like a ramp um so that we could push in the timpani <laughs> were just given to us for those weeks just as a friendly gesture from the orchestra of my mom who was a radio uh, symphony orchestra in Zabrücken, and they would just give us a timpani for a week you know and it was it always started as a effort of many people supporting each other um the, the the musicians were sleeping either in homes of other musicians in Mannheim or people who would have empty apartments would give us just the apartment so that people could sleep there it was unbelievable with what a small budget we managed to organize an entire season I think the first season we had like maybe 150,000 euro 100,000 euro something like this and we organized eight projects it was insane mm. insane amount of manual work and doing everything and then over time it got professional more professional and professional means more expensive basically um everything. exactly uh, so did you get sponsorship or uh, how did, did you initially fund it at the beginning and and I, even though you were obviously going to be talking with your friends you'd been to china with about coming and joining your orchestra at some point i'm assuming you had to then officially start auditioning people um mm -hmm. Yeah, we I mean, really maybe serious. at the very beginning, we were really serious about it. We we start we made posters like I have. Let's say I think one of my really qualities is that I can dream up things. Let's say so I I can like when I have a vision, I can really work hard for it to to come to to fruition. And I because I had that childhood we were talking about, I was, you know, like in my childhood, I was doing computers too. And I was building websites for fun. Um, I even worked, uh, did, a, did a internship at MediaMarkt for two weeks. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I always like had a broad interest in, in technology too. And therefore I could do the whole website of the orchestra. It looked like it exists, although it didn't yet, you know, um, and I could um, save lots of money and things like that by doing, by doing things myself. And that helped us in the beginning totally. Um, and helped in a way to, you know, create all of this that actually was in the beginning, just in my head, but it looked pretty existing already and that helped me when i was reaching out to um to people i mean how it literally how it started is we started asking people in mannheim um if they if we could present the idea and so by chance we presented it to someone who was a former um uh, c level at deutsche bank in the area and then he liked it and he said oh you should present it to this guy so we spent with a friend of mine we spent like I think few months in living rooms of people telling them the story of why we're doing this. And bit by bit, we came to the people who actually had the money to support it. So mm. billionaire from the region then said, I think it's nice that you guys are trying here. You have 5,000 euros. So we took the 5,000. Now he's one of the biggest sponsors of the orchestra um, and helping us to get money from the city and the government and, um, but it started with 5,000 euro from him and um, and then this is how we came I remember a pivotal moment because I was um, booking the hall and the hall in Mannheim is 
pretty big and pretty expensive. Um, and the the guy who was running it did not have much understanding for us young people trying to do something. So he said, well, if you book it, you have to pay it. Mm. And sure, but like, what if we can't? He said, well, there are fees you have to pay at least half, you have to pay then anyway. Okay, fine. And then I asked my parents, um, I called them and said, guys, like, um, and they're for sure not rich. Mm. <laughs> my mom is a concert master. Mm. Uh, and my dad, unfortunately, had an injury and then did not sing for many years. So we were total normal. I mean, concert masters earn well, but not anything crazy. Um, so I asked them, will you have my back if it goes wrong? And and my mom said, how much are we talking about? And I said, I think the signature that I have to give is like 40,000 euros, something like this. And she said, Oof. <laughs> <laughs> and and said well go for it you know and i said okay i'm gonna sign it and and i signed that moment and the mm. moment i signed that kind of put, put even more pressure to make it happen and um somehow yeah that was a pivotal moment and i remember when i then sat at the mannheim Versicherung, which is an important company insurance company for for instruments actually and old timers, those all those kind of things, and they're sitting in Mannheim. And back then, the CEO of that company was a big music lover, and he loved the idea. And he said, "I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna give you thirty thousand euro, and I'm gonna get you other fifteen support from, um, from a city, basically." Mm. And this is how I remember how I had tears because until then we did not yet have any sponsor, uh, just those five thousand from this one. And that was the pivotal moment where I knew, okay, it's happening. It's, mm. it's it's happening. And we started it and we did auditions all summer. We made like publicity in all music schools in Germany or high schools, um, universities, and people applied and this new orchestra. And, um, and it was a very, very exciting time. We had like musicians from all the major orchestras coming and sitting in the jury. It was really like done with, Lots of, you know, like um, spirits of professional approach. Um, and then the first project happened with Dvorak um, New World Symphony, which I had conducted already a few times. So I felt more secure with that piece. Um, and um, it went well. We had a standing ovation in the hall. And this is how then from that moment we played every month a concert. Um, and yeah, it was fun. <laughs> And so that was 2009, and it's still going now. And so I think you said that, the, that you had eight concerts in, or eight projects in that first initial yeah, one, season. Yeah, one we had to cancel, and we had to pay the cancellation fee. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> um, but yeah, one we had to cancel, so it was seven in the first. And so in a season now, um, I mean, we're, we're probably halfway through your season, season 23, 24. How many concerts do you put on now? Well, usually it was before or during COVID, we had every month one. Now, since the new reality of um, inflation hit and literally everything became almost double for us mm. expenses. Um, we're right now, this season is a kind of a light season and we have just four major projects, which is very sad. But um, we're trying to, you know, um, see what we can do with the current expenses. This is what we can do. Um, but there is a big amount of expenses, just, you know, personnel and all those kind of things, which um, 
they're actually made for a big operation, but we don't have yet the money for the same kind of operation we had. We need now 100,000 for a concert. Um, oh. It's crazy. Um, and yeah, so this is this is the new the new reality and we're trying to get back to every month. Mm. Good. Well, I wish you well, um, because, you know, until COVID, it seemed to be a, a very great success story. Uh, you know, I, as we said before we pressed uh, or before I pressed record on the interview, you know, we've we've not actually seen each. We nearly saw each other. Uh, I was staying in Mannheim and had a, con a concert in Heidelberg, but ended oh. up actually conducting the concert, if you remember, because Andres Nelson's went. Um, yeah, so we were going to meet that day, and I ended up having to learn to how to conduct La Mer instead uh, on, on a few hours' notice. But, you know, we keep in touch via the medium of Facebook and websites and social media and whatever else. And so, yeah, I've been watching what you've been doing there. And it's, you know, until COVID, it seemed to have been a roaring success, and I hope it comes back. Thank you. But, well, also now it is. I mean, it's 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 wonderful. We You know, over this time, things developed. We had... I think Misha Maisky was the really first. Oh no, actually Johannes Moser was the very first big name in the first season who agreed to come without any fee and played and was a great support. But then I think Misha Maisky was the next really, really, really big supporter. Then um, who played with then since then many, many times with us. And then it started, you know, people started talking. Um, Solo started talking, and um, Baba Jan came. Baba Jan told Marta. Marta then now comes regularly. Um, now Daniel is coming next season and like it really expands the circle of soloists who are loving to come to Mannheim mm. and I really think it's a very special place because music making in the orchestra there is not like everywhere else there's something really special about it now it's not anymore just a training orchestra like there are actually concert masters and solo um, section leaders from other orchestras um, who love the project they come um, and I don't want to use the name tutors because they're not they're more mm. like colleagues. they're colleagues they're playing together and you have this amazing group of young unexperienced but super motivated or very experienced but searching maybe from some freshness uh, to escape from their real lives in a way and this creates an incredible group of you know people who love music and are there just for the fun of doing it um, and then super openness, um, whatever ideas might sometimes crazy I might have, they follow it, they're ready to just do it. It's a total surrealistic situation and totally spoiled as a conductor in a way, because I, when I'm conducting in Mannheim, I don't have the feeling that I have opposition, but more mm. of a genuine love for what I suggest and and it's it's wonderful that I I have that freedom and possibility to develop an interpretation um and that's that's unique you know when you guest conduct you have to be much more diplomatic and you have to see in certain situations what you can say what you can't you know exactly what it needs but you cannot sometimes do that and um so and here I can be totally myself I just can say what I think and we have a very nice way to to work and and I think that the soloists feel that too and so it's wonderful now having these amazing yeah amazing artists coming and joining us sharing with us um, Pinky, when when he was there, you know, because Sukaman, he was just sharing with the orchestra. He was basically giving a masterclass to everyone, 
And I, I think those moments are really special when, when the soloists come and they see why those people are sitting there like this. Um, this, this is very, very yeah special and wonderful. And yeah, I want more of that. So I take your um, wish very seriously. <laughs> I hope I hope too that that we can find the way to play more more often. In the meantime, and you've just touched on it quite well, actually, um, and mentioned things such as, you know, how hard you can push when you guest conduct. You know, in the meantime, you'll be guest conducting um, wherever you're invited to go. As you've just said, you know, one has to sometimes be careful uh, or think you need to be careful about what you say when you go to these places. Do you have any strategies or thought processes that you go through before you guest conduct especially before you make a debut because we all have to do that the speed dating that is an, a debut with an orchestra where you put that beat down you have no idea when when the sounds are going to come back what's going to come back how they're going to react and normally people make a decision on you anywhere between the minute you've walked to the podium uh to within 15 minutes some people uh, you know i used to I used to give them a, a day or so to see if they could accompany a soloist when I was an orchestral violinist. But, you know, most people have made a decision. I remember one player deciding after the first note of Nielsen's Third Symphony that it was going to be a awful week. <laughs> um, so uh, your thoughts and strategies, I mean, uh, when you go and guest conduct. Yeah, it's a tough thing, guest conducting, um, because of all the things you mentioned. And um, strategy, I mean... I remember Gelmetti was always saying, um, you can't plan your what you're gonna say, what you're gonna do, a tavolino, like on the on the table. You can't mm. plan it. And I I live by that. I, I think it's true. It's like you can of course be prepared and know which places are tricky or you know what might need your attention, but you'll be surprised. In some orchestras, some things just work and and you should not, as you also were saying, should not lift the carpet um, if it's actually fine, because you might find then things which then take a lot of time cleaning. Mm. So, um, uh, yeah, you, you'd be surprised. Some things really work well. Others where you never had a problem have then issues. So having this spontaneity, I think it's super important in our profession. Um, just seeing what comes back and what is needed, because at the end, we're there to serve, mm. you know, um, even if it's um, our interpretation, but still we're there to serve them to be at their best in the performance. Um, and um, I think our goal is to make them understand the score in a way that they really can be free in it, knowing everything what's happening around them and at the same time where you want them to go. Um, I think that is our job in the in the in this rehearsals, and this is where guest conducting becomes hard, because sometimes you need to do a certain way of cleanup in an orchestra that might have some issues in, for example, culture of playing together. Together, I think that's a, that's an important issue that actually many orchestras have, but they also have often a very strong ego in a way, or mm. Um, they think they're great and which they actually are, but there are few things that need to be touched and spoken about and also rehearsed in a certain way. And if you do that, that's going to piss off somebody. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Or, or many people, maybe, you know, maybe a third of them. And maybe this is the third that actually brings that orchestra down to that level, why it's needed. Mm. Um, and then you need to choose your fights and decide whether it's worth it or not. And I don't know, actually, I can't give you an answer now because I'm 
still young, I, although now today's world I'm considered a middle-aged conductor, but and I think 36 is still very young for a conductor and I for sure didn't yet figure out I, I know only one thing that with the time passes, the more and more I care less about what people think about me. <laughs> um, so maybe that's the key to, to it. Um, and maybe being yourself is the right thing. But I know that you cannot be yourself right away because people are going to misunderstand it. Um, I mean, this is the same thing also in, you know, when you have a flirt approaching, you're also not yourself, right? In the beginning, mm. it's all this kind of game of getting to know each other. And the more and the more the the other person knows you the more the guards can fall and the more you can open up as a personality without them misjudging you um and i think it's just the same just super fast it needs to happen within a few days with an orchestra which is nearly impossible yeah yeah absolutely true i mean you you reminded me of a story of of a conductor i'd heard uh, and I was in a teaching situation and somebody said to me, well, how would you have done it differently? But, the, you know, the story I'd heard was that, you know, a young conductor went to a very, very famous orchestra and what, and started tuning the woodwind in the rehearsal, which apparently upset this orchestra because, you know, as you mentioned, they've got big egos and whatever else. Um, and then somebody said to me, well, if it was out of tune, surely it's your job to tune it in the rehearsal. And I said, well... Yes, but there are other ways of approaching it. It might it might have been better to have turned around and said, "Look, I think there are some problems there, Woodwind. I'm sure you you know you can hear it yourselves. But if I if I leave you five minutes at the end of the rehearsal, do you want to sort it out, out amongst yourselves?" So by doing that, what you're showing is that you've got the ears and you spotted that it's out of tune, but you're giving them the option then if if they want to to sort it out amongst themselves. If they then turn around and say, "Actually, would you mind doing it for us now?" Well then, that's fine. But an orchestra with an ego who might don't don't want to share their dirty laundry out in a rehearsal might well turn around and say, "Okay, great. Leave us five minutes. We'll do it at the end, or we'll do it in the coffee break, or whatever it is." You know, there are ways of showing that these things need rehearsing, but you don't actually have to do it in the hardest way possible. Which is right. I'm going to tune your woodwind section for you right now. You know that that can, as you say, bruise or damage an ego that people might yeah. have. Um, and these are the problems we have because you know, unless you've got a a tactic like that, you're always making snap decisions, aren't you? Right, I've got to fix this, or I, I'm not going to fix that because I think I'm going to start an argument. You know, well, there are ways that you can sort of suggest. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, I think we have to we have to play that game. We are in much more diplomatic situation nowadays than, for example, during the times of Toscanini. Yeah, because orchestras are also much better than at that time um and as you say the musicians already you know some of them are even professors and have you know like i mean the, the, those people are really already in a, at a different level where we as conductors are not their teachers anymore at the same time sometimes <laughs> it requires us to be um <laughs> A difficult situation where you need to understand and have a good antennas of the situation and um and know how much you can push in a certain situation sometimes it's enough if you hear that someone is too low to actually say a bit rounder you know if you make the sound a bit rounder it's you gave you you told them something that is more about interpretation but it automatically because they will make it like that the sound it will actually be higher sometimes it's anyways so much little change you know or just dynamic somebody's too loud and and if you just put it a bit less then they put a bit less pressure as a wind then automatically the sound also settles you know there are a lot of techniques where you can achieve what you want 
without actually putting salt in the wound. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we get to these rehearsals, there is an 11th question, Boyan, which is about score preparation. And I've asked this of every conductor. Are you somebody who opens a score and quickly flicks through it, looking at the whole overall arch of the picture, and then zoom in and go in deeper? Are you somebody who listens to recordings? And when you come to mark up your scores, and I remember Yorma saying, you know, just use pencil. But even back then, I was using red, blue, and black. Are you somebody who marks up your scores with colours and lots of pencils? Or are you somebody who keeps them completely clean? How do you go about learning a score, Boyan? I have such a respect for those who can keep them completely clean. Me too. <laughs> I, I I don't know how they do it. Um, geniuses. Um, I need I need to to mark up my scores. I'm actually pretty not fanatic, but I am really organized about how I want my scores. Um, and that's something that is very important to me. Um, I do so how I do it if it's a piece I don't know, and it's something maybe that. Um, I want to discover, I see if there are many recordings, it's fantastic because you can listen to what others do. And I truly believe that there is nothing new in music. So our shape, our, our taste is shaped by the amount, sheer amount of music we have listened to. And, and the more we listen to, the better we will shape our own taste. So therefore, I am totally for listening to recordings. Mm. I find it stupid to stick to just one recording. And, you know, like, especially in the early days when you are starting out to, you know, practice with a recording, that's that's not useful for a no. conductor. But if you are already, uh, you know, a developed personality musician, I think actually recordings are fantastic and you, you can hear what matters to other colleagues and you can hear hidden voices um, that are taken out in a way where you only could imagine and here now you can hear it and see the result, whether whether it actually works, you know, like, for example, listening to Celebidakis Brahms recordings where it's so fanatically taken out the Hauptstimme everywhere, where sometimes it feels like, to me personally, I mean, it's my opinion, but it feels that the other voices are almost like almost castrated in a way, just <laughs> yeah, yeah. main voice to be heard academically that I feel like, sure, that's the main voice. And I know it's hidden in the, you know, second clarinet. But the others have a passionate motive too, and they have to coexist. So, um, but it's great that you have a statement of someone who did it so that you can hear how it is. Yes. Because as we said, when you go somewhere as a guest conductor, you're rarely allowed to experiment. You have to have a very clear idea before you are there. Um, and the next time you can try something out, something new is the next orchestra, um, sometimes, unfortunately. So... Um, yes, I mark up my score. So what I do is I go over the score. I make first the structure. I'm really, for me, my my music making really revolves around structure. I believe very much in that. Um, I think that it gives, I always call it gravity. So um, it it creates it, it creates heavy and light points and everything composers do. Um, whether they put a sforzato on a two, on a four, then it has a different way to be played than whether it's on one and on three. And for me, it exists, you know, this macro and microcosmos in a way that bars define this kind of breathing um, also overarching over bars. So you can have four bar structure. So it's like a big four fourth in a way. Um, and within one quarter note, you also have four heavy and light beats. And for me, so all of this, um, I work a lot on that also with the orchestra and I truly believe that that 
solves a lot of questions about phrasing mm. because music, music can be phrased in many different ways. And we know that. So you, does the phrase go there or there? Well, the structure will give you the answer to it because you can compose it in a way where it leads to the F sharp or where the F sharp falls on a light beat. And therefore it leads to another um, the same melody just shifted and, and you will only understand it by seeing the surrounding um, and that will answer a lot of questions so I, I really yeah my whole music making um, relies very strongly on structure and this is why I love Claudio Bado so much because his music breathes when he makes when he used to make music and I think that structure was very strongly present in his vision um so I do structure then what I do is I use colors yes I use especially in big scores I think they help me to pop up things yes so I agree yeah I use red for piano blue for for forte it's that Italian way I know that there is also another way to do just the opposite um and i i actually go through every single voice and if there's forzati i mark them up with a with a marker and the accents so i'm pretty meticulous about that but that helps me actually to study the score in detail um because i look at every part and um and that at the end i have a very marked up score but i do it with rulers so i really i don't like mess i cannot work in a mess um, therefore, it needs to be really structured. I need the cage in order to be free. I don't know if it makes sense. but <laughs> it makes total sense because I'm pretty much the same. My scores are meticulously marked up. It And as I've said it many times on this podcast, it helps me learn them. By writing this stuff in, I know what's coming on the next page because I remember writing in the, you know, the stuff. I remember doing it. It helps me absorb it all. And yeah. in moments of crisis, when you know the orchestra might be wobbling slightly, I can look down and there are, there are things popping off the page at me in blue, red, or black, whatever it might be. Occasionally, a highlighter marker, very occasionally. Um, but yeah, for, but other people do it in a different way. And over 140 odd episodes, you know, I've heard every way possible. Um, but what it proves is that we all have a way that we we rely on, and you know, and what you can you can do that in nine months or nine days or nine hours, as I had recently, where I literally had no time at all. And it just used to, I just got the red, blue pencil and the sharpener out and went crazy over it, you know, for a whole program. I had nine hours to learn it in. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it everybody has their own way. Um, and I yeah. agree with you about recordings as well. You'd be arrogant not to listen to how Abado did it versus Pavel Yevi did it versus Wengler did it versus Rattle did it. You'd be, you'd be stupid and arrogant. Yeah, and it will take you much more time. Yeah. I mean, it's normal. Like um, if you have a recording, you have such a head start already. Um, of course, you can say, no, I don't want to know what's around me. But that's, as you say, totally arrogant. And also it will require much more time until, you know, sit on the piano, figure out. Um, sure. Now I'm at the stage where I look at the score and it sounds um, this is, but it not doesn't work with everything, right? Mm. If it's a new music i can imagine what it is but then i also need to sit down and, and see whether it is what it so um i i really envy those geniuses who can look at it and read it you know like almost like sight read it and see everything i know there are few <laughs> and i i really envy them for that but on the other hand you know everyone um, important is that when we are at the rehearsal we do our job well and how we get there um, it's our personal business and um, and yeah therefore as you said when you when you have sh short amount of time maybe people who do it like us have a bit of more 
of, of trouble because just of the sheer amount of manual work that is involved in the preparation of the score um, that can drive you crazy. I mean, if you have a big opera score, I really go and mark up the parts and and I I, I see where the syllables fall and I, I make, you know, like little circles around those, those syllables. That, I mean, in Puccini, it can be quite tricky in the pronunciation. I mean, I'm Italian. And and still, you know, to know exactly on which syllable the beats fall and how the other. So I help myself and I make little circles and then I know exactly where where it is and then I can pronounce it. If I can pronounce it, I can teach them how to do it. Very simple. Are you a young conductor, thirsty for knowledge and wanting to discover more about the conducting world? Then my Patreon page is there for you. I'm constantly posting new content there based on my experiences as a conductor and as an ex-orchestral player, and I offer you the chance to ask me any question any time of the day. For instance, you might like to ask me how to mark up or learn a score, as we've just been discussing. When you subscribe, you'll gain access to interviews, video posts, tour diaries, articles and much more. If you pay for the whole year, then you will gain a 10% discount, and if you're a student, contact me directly and there'll be a further discount. All of this can be found at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Boyan Vidinov. Boyan it is that time when we must traverse the 10 questions. The 10 questions, the same 10 questions that everyone else has answered. And therefore, I always start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Um, actually, I'll start with what I hate. The first time I was in a London tube and I heard that noise, that mm -hmm. was horrible. And I, I really hope I don't have to hear it <laughs> very often. Because Are you talking about the wheels screeching as they come yes, around the corners? Yeah. Horrible. It's really like, it's painful, painful sound. Mm. I don't know how people do it. I, this is maybe why everyone is with uh, earplugs there and earphones, because it's a horrible noise. And what I love, I mean, I actually love silence. I really adore silence. But when it comes to noise, nature sounds are great. Um, so having birds chirping is beautiful and something relaxing like that. Um, I like it when, I, when I'm when i nature. I love that. And living in Berlin and working in it often as you do in Mannheim, neither of those places are particularly... I mean, there are parks in Berlin. I mean, can you get out quickly to somewhere quiet and nature-filled? You know, Berlin has a lot of courtyards, so many houses actually have a bedroom facing the courtyard, like in our case. And when you open the, we're in the middle of the city, just next to the, almost next to the opera, um, and you open the window in our bedroom and you hear birds chirping. <laughs> so it's, you don't have any noise from the streets. It's unbelievable. Brilliant. Lucky you. Yeah, it's wonderful. Number three, if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I actually have lots of hobbies um, and I have also a few things that I really adore. Like, for example, just uh, I did the boat license, boating license. I, I really love that. Um, so just going on the water for me, 24 hours gives me total vacation vibe. Um, spending 24 hours on the water resets me, grounds me, and then I'm ready to go again. So this is something I really love. Something 
I think we need something that empties our mind of music, musical problems, you know, problems of phrasing or whatever else, problems of programming. People always want to know the next pro or rehearsal schedules that just empties your mind. I've got a couple of, you know, I, I collect watches. I love playing cricket in the summer. I've recently started playing Fantasy Premier League, which I can spend hours building teams and have nothing to do with music whatsoever. Um, but we need that, don't we? Something that just drains the system. Absolutely. I mean, I, since I'm a kid, I grew up with video games and stuff. Unfortunately, I don't have much time nowadays, but I, you know, when the new thing comes out like a PS5 or whatever, I get it. And then I spend playing three times during the year, maybe, but still I, I am very excited of VR headsets come out and I just buy them and try it out. So I, I like this stuff. I have yeah passion for, for that. And um, I remember I wanted to do a pilot's license, but the moment I got into a Cessna during a windy day, I felt very sick doing that. <laughs> um, uh, so I postponed that <laughs> for a while. But yeah, I, I am someone who can find lots of passions and, and you know, hobbies also in other things. Number four, who would be your favorite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Um, I mean, we talked about him already. I, I think Claudia Bado was a wonderful musician. I love his music making. I find it incredible how... Um, ahead of his time he was in terms of actually historically informed playing <laughs> if you think of that that term was not really around uh, much and and still his music breathes and and his mozart is so natural and um, schubert and generally loved and, and of course we all love the big master right um kleiber who doesn't um yeah these are these are amazing but i i think i find value in every big even those who I don't like then i know what i don't like and why i don't like it and um it also helps me shape my taste do you remember and i wonder which end of the table you were sitting at uh, i'm going back to april 2007 we all went out for a meal and there were what 15 or 16 of us students there weren't there there was the guy who was running the course, Michael. They ripped and us off in the restaurant, remember? In the restaurant, yeah. And Yorma was sitting back. right in the middle. And <laughs> I was sitting at one end of the table with two Italian guys um, and another English guy called Chris Russman. Uh, and I don't know which end of the table you were at, but I had a phone at the time that I could play videos on. And I was I was showing a, a Carlos Kleiber video, probably Beethoven 4 or 7. Yeah. And we, we were all passing it around and talking about Kleiber. Of course, we were all conductively obsessed. And it went to Chris, and Chris said, don't pass it any further, because Yorma can't stand it, Carlos Kleiber. Um, I don't know which end of the table you were at, whether you were at my end and we were looking at Kleiber videos, or whether you, you it never got to your I end for, of the table. I forgot, I forgot about that moment. Uh, <laughs> but, but yes, true, true, Yorma doesn't like uh, Kleiber, right? No, no. I, I cannot remember why, but no, he definitely didn't like him. Um Interesting. No, I, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> Going on to the harder question, or it's proved harder in, with, in, for some people, can you name your favourite current conductor or conductors? Hmm. It is harder, yes. Um, you know, the, the thing is about that, that I there, there are qualities I like in everyone that I hear. I mean, I really like Pavel Yerby, for example. I think he has beautiful interpretations and there are there are many i mean it's 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 difficult to choose especially when they're still alive you you don't want to take you know <laughs> a side and, and on the other hand it's also it's not about political but it's just because um people evolve and i hate this fact that we are judged by one performance so often in mm -hmm. our life you know 
And I was myself, I remember that I was in a performance of someone said, ah, I don't like it. And then later it turned out, I love this pianist now so much. But when I heard that concert once, I was like, ah. And then for years I did not listen anymore. And now I, I am a huge fan of this person. So I think we evolve. If you listen to early recordings of someone and then later you'll be surprised. Um, I like music making that is natural, that that happens naturally, that that does not have weird, um, you know, pre-planned conceptions, but where things just happen and where music breathes. Um, and therefore, I, I, if I had to name them, one of them is, for example, Pavo Yervi. I love, I love how he does things. I agree. I mean, Simon Rettel has said his recordings are postcards of his time here. You know, that's what it was like then, and now it's like this now. Um, and people do... And, and often people have answered this question in a repertoire-specific way. You, know, you might go to a concert and see a conductor conduct a, a symphony of a composer for the first time, and it might not be their repertoire. They might be much better at something else. You know, Absolutely. that's how it is. Well, for example, Valeri in, in, in Prokofiev, it's some of the best Prokofiev I've ever heard. Um, the I think it was Prokofiev 7th or something I heard Valeri doing. I I, I adored that. Um, or, you know, Antonio Papano in, in, in certain repertoire I adored too. So it, it's mm. so... It's so difficult. And as I said, we all evolve and you might have today, you, you might tell, oh, did you hear this guy? And then and then you go and listen to that same recording that you were so in love with. And I said, my, my taste changed, you know, or something yes. like that. Um, it's hard. It's really hard to, to, to make such bold statements in a way. But yeah, I mean, one can make a statement about what one likes. And for me, music that breathes and music that has a natural flow. And this, this is something very important. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? There is always a hardest work in a specific time yes. <laughs> of our development, right? I remember for me, conducting my very, very first concert was extremely hard. <laughs> um, it was Bach uh, uh, suite, uh, H minor suite. I mean, it's not difficult right now to conduct, for sure not. Um, and uh, it was some Greek piece, something that time was for me incredibly difficult um, or doing my Beethoven seventh the first time. Um, I think recently, my last year, I had to conduct um, Debussy Image. Um, that I found challenging. Um, it has many challenging moments and also rehearsing it, I found it challenging um, because it has multi-structured, multi-layered structure, which, um, yeah, to, to bring that out, not in an explicit way, like, you know, it's like a French language. Um, many It has many, many letters that are not pronounced, but they're there and mm. they make sound. Um, and in a way, it's also like that with French music. Um, there are many voices, but they shouldn't be heard too strongly. At the same time, if they're not there, they, the music doesn't work. So, yeah, I found that um, complicated, um, you know, learning a difficult opera. I, now I'm, I'm studying Turandot and um, it's, it's, it's a tough piece. I'm now curious to do it. I'm doing it. Um, this whole January now in Dijon, and I'm I'm interested to see how it will go. But um, that's that's of course an experience. So yeah, at every stage of our lives we encounter such big pieces that make us grow. I remember as a student, Matas de Mala was really tough. Um, yeah, and I, I would go back. I, I conducted Beethoven Seven very early on in my career. I mean, you know, Me too. Uh, sort of concert ten or eleven, or even even earlier than that. 
if I could go back and watch myself conduct that then, having, you know, now conducted uh, 880-odd concerts um, and conducted Beethoven 7 many, many, many times since then, I'd probably be appalled at what I did that first time. Um, you know, we, we do grow, like you've, you know, like, like you've said, we all grow, we all change, we all learn things. Um, yeah. Debussy is such a difficult composer to rehearse because... You know, with my ex-playing hat on, nobody ever has anything really to get their teeth into, as a string player especially. You're playing so much of the atmosphere, the 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 mist that's around the image rather than the image itself, you know. But if you don't play that well, it doesn't speak as Debussy. It's, you know, it's like you said, it's those letters that are, are barely spoken or they're, they're, they're just at the, chopped off at the end of words, but if it needs to be pronounced correctly. And as string players, you often sit there thinking, oh, this is such unrewarding playing. But if you play it correctly, the, the overall picture really works, and which makes it tough to rehearse because you've got to cajole people into putting effort into something that really is not difficult to play. <laughs> Yes, and, and it, it requires a certain way of rehearsing that maybe also some orchestras don't like so much because you really need to take sometimes things apart and just, okay, just this and this and this instrument and then this and this and that and then put them again together and some get maybe bored about that. But if you do that work, it's very rewarding at the end. Mm. So so there you need to choose your battles. Um, and yeah, I, I, found it, I found it tricky, but also to conduct. I mean, it were some technical things in Image which... Um, um, you know how to solve it when it's very slow and uh, do you subdivide don't you do, where do you subdivide usually it's where <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah number seven when traveling abroad to conduct what item could you not leave home without Mike I'm gonna really disappoint you on this um, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm not superstitious at all <laughs> um, for me you can buy anything nowadays almost everywhere so um, there's nothing where I'd freak out if I don't have it with me I think it's my score but not the fact of the music itself but because we both as you also do it prepare our score in a certain way and that is my only harbor of safety in a way, especially if it's a new place where I conduct and maybe a new piece. That's something where I really want to have it with me. So my markings, mm. not, the, not the score, but my markings. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to ask a question that is very specific to you personally. Uh, I don't think I've ever asked this of anybody else because I just naturally assume that they have a paper score. But you are a co-CEO of a company. Uh, I can't, Is it called E-Note or something like yeah. that? E-Note, yes. yeah. which is all about digital downloading of music. Yeah. Are you still using paper scores to conduct, or do you conduct off an iPad and put your Since markings on it? Well, I'm on an iPad. Since you're, a while. You're, yeah, right. I mean, sometimes if I didn't yet have the time to, to you know, mark it up in a digital score then i might still take my other score but usually i also scan my my already marked up scores and put them in i found it extremely useful to have the ipad i have everything with me in a device like that not having those suitcases with me is just a blessing <laughs> hmm, that's true i mean i'm not sure i could get used to turning or flipping the page twice more or double the amount of times than you do I with, a, with a problem right. and it's not at all yeah. Like, I really thought it's a problem. And I recently had to conduct um, Traviata again from a score because I didn't have... Anyway, I had the score and I, I in performance, I tapped on the paper. 
<laughs> and then I realized, what are you doing? And I grabbed it and turned the page. <laughs> but almost in such an instinct already, just tap for turning the page. It's so much more seamless, this tap. It's almost, you don't feel like you're turning pages because it happens instantly. You just touch it, you know? And it. I really adore actually conducting from the iPad. Of course, some scores appear very small on it. And um, this is why we are actually with Eno trying now to build a device also that will be bigger for, you know for, especially for such cases but um i i adore it actually it's 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 the future i really love it i think if i was your age i would definitely go for it but as somebody who's recently having to start to wear glasses two different pairs one for driving and one for reading you know small print uh, uh behind me as you can see in my scores and my study and the on the top horizontally uh, is an ever growing pile of a3 scores the bigger the better for me at the moment so i think if i were to ever need to convert you'd need to come up with a, a device that's yeah. getting on for a3 size so i can at least see it especially for us conductors it is like that it's yeah. true but you know for example digital gives us other possibilities for example for parts when you have a fully digital score it's like a word document so imagine you can make up the text size just bigger yeah so for Actually, for instrumentalists, it's fantastic um, because you have a, a format that you can manipulate. You can change the text size, you can change the font, you can uh, transpose, you know, all of that kind, those kind of things. So it is definitely the future. It just takes time to get there and get the real equipment for professional usage. Yeah, it's just a matter of time. Number eight, what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I think what I'd really want to change is, but as, of course also it's just a topic, but um, this ritual of getting to know each other with the orchestra. Um, it would be so wonderful if we could all meet at a level where there are no judgments, where there are no you know, facades that we have to have where we can really work from soul to soul. This is something I'd really want to change. And this may be also what keeps me going on with my orchestra because that's the only place on planet Earth where I have experienced that. Mm. And I find it so rewarding. It's such, you know, like, oh, it's a balsam for the soul to be able to be yourself and just about what you care in music. And if you're wrong, you're wrong, then you change it. And there is no hard feelings in it. Nobody gets offended if you um, if you try out something or say something, you know, like where, where we all can be ourselves and without having this, you know, this very tense game of will they invite me or not? Or, you know, like all of this, ah, I, I really hate that. And I would love to change that if possible. Yeah. I mean, I'm nodding away because um, my next two patches of work come back to back. Start. I fly to Cologne on Sunday, and I work with the WDR Funkhouse Orchestra again, uh, probably for about the eighth, ninth, tenth time, and then come back and go straight to Manchester and work with the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra again. Both recordings, um, so there's no concerts involved. My point being is that I'm sitting here now and there is not one single butterfly of nerves in my stomach because they're orchestras I've formed relationships over many, many, many years. 
and I know that we we're at that position. You are with your orchestra, where I could probably try something experiment. Nobody be, would be offended. Uh, we've got the time to do that. The problem comes was the next time you go out there and it's an orchestra you've maybe only worked with once before, or it's a debut. That's when, yeah, as you said, you're you're starting from scratch. It's blind dating. It's you know, and you just have to hope that. It, over the course of your career, you meet enough people who you get on with initially well enough for them to want to see you for a second date. Um, you know, coffee turns into dinner or into lunch and you know, maybe lunch turns into dinner and then dinner turns into a, a week away on holiday or whatever it is. You know, but sometimes you go, you meet these people and they just don't want to. And I, it's right. You're, you're right. It would be nice to be in a position where orchestras and conductors could yeah, could spend well, I mean, time and experiment with each other. How loved he was, um, and he was totally himself, right? Um, and sometimes I tell myself, like, just be yourself and whatever. Like, um, and I think I go more and more in that direction, and I really say, okay, you know, if you don't like me, you don't like me. I don't care anymore. But it's hard because I don't care anymore. Could result in you know, you know, it's it's yeah, as you say, it's, it's it might be an important place you want to be liked, and that's already the issue. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm I'm very much like you in the fact that you know I I just go and I'm I'm myself and if you don't like me being myself well then that's fine you know I'm not going to try and be some somebody else uh, right. there there are plenty of orchestras out there who will like me for my me being myself and also for you dear orchestra who don't like me there are plenty of other conductors you will like you know that that's fine you know I think you have to come to that that acceptance don't you and just realize that you. you You'll find your your the people your friends. Yeah. You'll find them. Yes, yes, this is yeah. true. Actually, life generally like live it in a certain way, and life will serve you the people who are suited for that life. Yeah, um, and and you'll you'll have a circle of people that will work with that change your lifestyle, and you'll find other circles. It's uh it's very interesting, um and still we are also in a way um somehow conditioned by our experiences we made. So if you early on you know wear yourself. The yourself you were 10 years ago is not the same that you're now so making the conclusions oh when i'm myself it goes wrong is also wrong because well at that point you had certain ways of doing now you have others so try out the new ones so yeah it's 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 a hard balance between all those things and um i think trying to to be open and and just share your spirit your your human soul with the people even if that makes you vulnerable, at the end, it's it's what makes you being you and makes you special, and therefore it's worth it. Um, love, being loved, and love um, always brings us at some point pain, but that pain is worth it for the amount of positive energy that one got out of the loving relationship. Number nine is. Usually, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? But you are, as I've just said, uh, um, a co-CEO of a, an online digital music platform. So therefore, uh, you're going to have to think of a third job. Uh, what other job <laughs> might you what, have wished you'd tried? Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I really got into entrepreneurship without wanting it. By founding the orchestra, um, I realized that I have to learn certain things if I want to keep it afloat. Um, finances, you know, like I think I pretty well know about taxation and how it works <laughs> in Germany because it's a complex structure, a non-profitable organization. Um, and yeah, so those kind of things, I got into it 
I, I since I was a kid, I was good in raising funds. Um, um, so somehow I, I think I have, I can transmit my passion for something. So if I don't believe in a product, no way I'm going to sell it. I'm not a good salesman. There are people who can sell you whatever you mm. give them and they can sell it. They find an argument why you need it. I'm not one of those. I need to really be passionate about uh, something passionate, but then I can be super convincing, especially in one-on-one -on -one conversations. I I'm going to convince you about something that I believe in. Um, I'm really good at that. So that turns out to be useful for raising, uh, you know, money for the arts um, in both cases, whether it was, you know, uh, as investors or whether it was the orchestra for finding sponsors for the orchestra. So, yeah, entrepreneurship is something that really has something that it grew on me. I, I like it. I like to see the future. I like to work with the future to see the ideas of people they have maybe I, I'd want one day, maybe hopefully I can in some sort, even in small ways. I know that nowadays it's possible to be like angel investor, you know, those kind of things where um, I find it great to, 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 to give the people the possibility to, you know, to give them wings for their ideas, to see, to see um, uh, potential in people and, and, and help them guide them. This is things that would interest me if I hopefully get to a point where <laughs> I, I could put enough um, also time and, and, um, effort into it and money of course um, otherwise I always wanted to fly but I had this horrible experience so I, I put <laughs> I put it aside <laughs> uh, but that's something that I really adore um, and I know people who um, had the same problem with as I have that um, I mean the Cessna is horrible you get yeah. on this plane and it's like a tricycle in the air so it's literally <laughs> in all directions it does like this and you are focused on those instruments and yeah, if you have a, a like a delicate ear, like I do, obviously, I don't know. Um, this um, this results in feeling sick, but um, that's something I would have wanted to do. Um, yeah, if I was not a musician. Early doors. I mean, I'm talking way back in the beginning of the podcast. I had quite a lot of flyers. Um, Andrew Litton, I seem to remember, wanted to be a pilot. Alpesh Chohan definitely wants to be a pilot. Um, and, of course, I banned Daniel Harding from saying pilot because he is a pilot. Um, but, yeah, it seemed to be quite a popular answer way back when, but it hasn't appeared for quite a while. So um, that's good. Interesting. I think we fly a lot, right? So we we see the we, we can relate to the fascinating experience it is. Um, and just recently I flew from Japan back to Europe over the North Pole and, and um, seeing those views, I mean, they're amazing. Um, so imagining of what you can see if you're a pilot or if you're an astronaut. And these are views that are granted to few. And yeah, th this might be the reason. <laughs> Number 10, Boyan, is if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Um, yeah, I think I go back to my roots. I grew up in Italy and spaghetti al pomodoro is what makes me laugh. Um, it's very simple, but I think that's that's what I like simple things. So a really good spaghetti al pomodoro, super al dente with lots of parmigiano. Um, and I don't know, a good... You know, uh, if if it's the last one, why not? You know, then Tignanel or something nice to accompany it uh, would be nice. Um, yeah, I think very simple but uh, good. Like it, Italians have this. Uh, the product is important. If if the tomato is great, the the dish will turn out fantastic. 
Absolutely. You've made me salivate. Uh, it's been a while <laughs> since we've been on holiday to Italy, uh, about time we got back there and ate some of that amazing food. As I said earlier, it's been, well, it'll be 17 years this April. It's been a joy to chat to you again. We've seemed to have just carried on where we left off, probably in a bar somewhere in St. Petersburg, chatting to each other. And I hope very soon that we, and not another 17 years, that we get to sit down and carry on chatting like old friends as we, as I think we are. Thank you, Boyan. Thank you, Mike. It's been a real pleasure. And yeah, I can't believe that it was 17 years. Um, it totally feels like we chatted yesterday. And I hope to see you soon um, live in person again. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I will be releasing a very special episode. It is special because I will be interviewing five young conductors, who are all studying at the Royal Conservatory of Scotland in Glasgow. They do all get to answer ten questions, but not exactly the same ten questions as everyone else. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>